on a, uh, a quintessential outsider in the international scene into the Soviet Union. Um, and we have a fantastic line of papers and experts on, on precisely this topic. Um, the first one um, is going to be Professor Susan uh, Gress-Solman, who obviously everyone knows, and is uh, um, he's going to talk about Soviet public health. Um, she has, um, as we all know, she's the foremost expert on transnational <laughs> scientific and medical connections and relations between various kinds of outsiders uh, and the international scene, um, in particular, Soviet Union into Germany and, and America. So, Thank you, Anna, for that overly generous introduction. So I sent around a paper, but I'm going to talk to that paper and assume that you've read it, if you haven't. Uh, I'll try to make it as clear as possible. The years 1921 to 36 were formative for the new Soviet public health. Its ideology was hammered out, its institutions designed, and structural relations between health professionals, political patrons, and clients were put in place. But for much of that period, and it's around this paradox that I want to work, Soviet public health was accepted unevenly outside Russia. Some players, international and national, engaged with its spokesmen but others excluded its scientists from exchanges, from programs that awarded fellowship support, and even from meetings. And there are some wonderful uh, moments, and I'm sure Paul has the equivalent for Germany, in which Soviet delegates go to a meeting and find themselves outside the door. Um, so if you look at the interwar documents of public health institutions and agencies with what I call international reach, so I mean the LNHO, the Rockefeller Foundation's International Health Board, and the Milbank Memorial, spokesmen for Soviet public health almost invariably appear as supplicants. And there's a good reason for that in the effort to reclaim the place that they had lost in pre-war international health Soviet spokesmen pressed every opportunity to be included in international fora and to seek out foreign patrons who would help them to showcase what they were doing at home. But here's the hard point I want to make. The Soviets were not merely supplicants. In the 1920s and 30s, spokesmen for Soviet public health pursued their own international agenda without emphasizing Bolshevism and often de-emphasizing Bolshevism, and that's the hard point I want to make, they touted the new Soviet medicine with its free, high quality, and universally accessible health care as appropriate for countries outside. This is not an instance of socialist internationalism. Uh, now, some of the most progressive interwar health statesmen, I'm thinking of John Kingsbury, Sir Arthur Newsom, Ludwig Rachman, Andrea Stampar, and Henry Sigarist looked at parts, if not the whole, of the Soviet model as a template for the future. And still for all that, I read the Soviet public health statesmen of the period as suffering from a curious mix of inferiority and superiority that uh, Michael David Fox has described in his book, Showcasing the Great Experiment. So in what case, I asked myself, and I tortured myself with this question, Jessica, in what sense could the Soviets be considered outsiders in international public health in this period? The brief sketch that I've just presented of the standing of Soviet public health vis-a-vis -vis the international suggests that the binary insider-outsider may be too firm 
too rigid to allow us the necessary leverage on some important questions that we might want to raise. For example, how did Soviet public health spokesmen manage the relationship with their counterparts, national and international, beyond Russian borders? And that's really the inverse of the question that was treated uh, in the first session. How did they create linkages with researchers and practitioners abroad? And how did they steer the circulation of Soviet ideas and practices in order to reach uh, new audiences? In thinking about the relationship between Soviet public health statesmen and international public health, 1921 to 37, I found myself drawn to but not entirely captured by, and I hope somebody asked me why not, the sociologist Georg Simmel's concept of the stranger, who is, quote, an element of the group itself while not being fully part of it. His position is determined by the fact that he doesn't belong to it from the beginning, and he may leave again. The actors in Soviet public health who most closely approximated Simmel's stranger were the representatives. The Predstavitali dispatched as early as 1921 by the Commissariat of Public Health's Bureau of Foreign Information, BZI, to capitals in Europe to carry the case for Soviet public health. This is nothing but cultural diplomacy or the use of soft power uh, to advance the image and to tighten relations between uh, Soviet Russia and Europe. For a good decade, I've been writing about the way in which BZI representatives functioned in various settings, international and national, in which they had not been reared. There were successes and there were failures. But I came, became increasingly persuaded that in the course of plying their craft, the representatives were courting danger, hence the title of the paper, Dangerous Play. With our conference looming, I began to look quite actively for a case that would illustrate the kinds of perils or dangers inherent in the liminal position in which these representatives found themselves, neither insiders or outsiders. And I decided to revisit a case I had encountered before, but whose implications I will confess absolutely frankly here, I had not fully grasped. So, the paper I sent round revolves around a heated debate in 1935 in the Academy of Medicine over the depopulation in France. The issue of depopulation was one that was on the agenda of many European countries at the time. But there are two interesting features of this debate in France. First, the target was Alexander Nikolaevich Rubakin, Russian-born, trained as a doctor in Paris, for much of the 1920s, Rubakin worked as the BZI representative in Paris. In the early 30s, he's recruited by Rachman as an external expert in the League of Nations Health Organization with a specific charge to include empirical material, statistics on Soviet public health. Then, it, this is a man for all seasons, in the spring of 1933, he, I would say, wangles himself a visiting fellowship uh, with the Rockefeller Foundation's International Health Board. Returning to Paris in the spring of 1933 with no fixed job, he writes first on Soviet and then on French public health. So I asked myself, how did this quintessential go-between, poised between Russia and France, become the target of the Academy's discussion? Was he just a convenient whipping boy, or did he actually shape 
the discourse in the debate. A second interesting feature of the debate was that it tethered or it linked to the discussion of depopulation in France the issue of legalized abortion in Russia. Now we know that in the 1930s, French pronatalist and family organizations were increasingly linking the question of denatalité, depopulation, and abortion. But how did legalized abortion in Russia get into the mix? And that was one of the questions that got me going. So in a letter to his friend John Kingsbury at the Milbank Memorial Fund in late May 35, Rubakin explained the attack on him. I quote, my stand, and the English is his, not mine, I hasten to admit. My standpoint is completely different from that generally admitted in the demographic science. I am analyzing the health and natality and the mortality from a sociological and economic point of view. And I try to show that the medical struggle has an economic and social limit represented by the social and economic structure. For this reason, I was violently attacked. I have to say that when I first found the letter, of course, you find a letter like this, and I was delighted, and I bought Rubakin's version of events. Today, having read both uh, in the Soviet archives, in the French archives, and in Rubakin's own papers, I would say, I would be inclined to say, that Rubakin was attacked not because of his interdisciplinary focus on demography, but because the socioeconomic stress on health and disease that he was advocating was tightly linked to an agenda for socio-political change. Now, when the focus was Russia, that agenda might be tolerable or even interesting. But when the object was France, it was quite another matter. Rubakin wrote to his bosses in Moscow, that social medicine was a hard sell in France. But he may have assumed, and he would have been wrong, that being accepted as the authoritative interpreter of one's country of origin would have favorable spillover effects on one's credibility as an analyst of the host country. Rubakin's letter to Kingsbury also made no mention of the fact that the debate in the academy tethered the question of abortion in Russia to the issue of depopulation in France. But the record of the debate in the academy's bulletin shows clearly that Rubakin was caught off balance by that tethering. He had consistently treated the issues as discrete. True to the tenets of Soviet social medicine, he framed abortion, both legal and illegal in Russia, as part of maternity and infancy. And he insisted that the Soviet legalization of abortion in 1920 was undertaken to protect the woman from underground abortions, and importantly, that it had no implications for the birth rate. He analyzed depopulation in relation to the mortality rate. He's not alone here, as Leon and I have often discussed, underscoring the socioeconomic conditions that affected that rate. But interestingly, Rubakin seems not to have appreciated the fact that the field of demography mapped differently in France from the way it did in Russia. The story that I sent round has its share of thrusts and feints, but I want to focus here on just two aspects. First, the framing of the agenda. If you read the debate in the Academy Bulletin, it would seem that it started with an intervention by Rubakin in January of 1935 on depopulation. But in fact, 
Rubakin said nothing in that intervention that he hadn't said before in his publications on the topic since 1929. And I put all this data into the paper. But as the paper shows, the terms of the debate in the academy were set in December 1934, outside the academy walls by Fernand Bovera, then Secretary General of the pro-natalist Alliance uh, pour l'accroissement de la population, Alliance Nationale pour l'accroissement de la population française. Horrified by the projected law to legalize in, uh, abortion in Russia à la Russe, that was presented in 1932 uh, by the communist deputy uh, Fressex to the Chamber of Deputies, Bovera became fixated um, on the issue of Soviet legalization of abortion. Until 1934, Bovera's articles on the subject all drew only on data in the public domain. But then he got a really lucky break. A colleague showed him a German translation of the proceedings of the 1927 All-Ukrainian Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists that was held in Kiev, at which Russian and Ukrainian OBGYNs criticized the medical sequelae of legalized abortion and, more important, argued that legalized abortion had a deleterious effect on the birth rate. Now, the bit between his teeth, Bovera went to the Conseil Supérieur de la Natalité, of which he was vice president, I can just imagine that conversation, after which the Minister of Public Health asked the opinion, and that's obviously a formulation, of the Academy on Soviet legalization of abortion as it was presented in Kiev. Now, I was fascinated by the fact that Rubakin didn't see, he didn't anticipate this push from the outside because by 1935, he himself was involved in what we call several different localities or settings, national, institutional, professional, scientific, in each of which ideas circulated. But Rubakin lacked that wide-angled view of the way in which those lo localities might be interconnected and the way those ideas might circulate between such localities. The second interesting feature of the debate relates to the data on which the arguments turned. There's a bit of irony in the fact that Rubakin was hired on by Rachman in 1929 with the specific charge of bringing Soviet public health data to the attention of health specialists. The dust up in the academy, as I call it, shows that despite his best efforts, he simply couldn't control the data coming out of Russia. In 1927, to be fair, Rubakin may not have known about the Kiev conference. He was, after all, in Paris. Moreover, the final resolution of that conference in Kiev proclaimed that there were no demographic implications of legalized abortion. But in 1935, when Rubakin rose in the academy, he'd read Bovarat's article of the previous month, and he knew very well about the German pirated translation of the Kiev conference, and yet he never alludes to it. In his masterwork, L'inégalité humaine devant la mort et la maladie, which was published in 1936, two months before the Soviet government criminalized abortion, Rubakin still endorsed the legalization of abortion and denied any demographic implications of that policy. Now, in fairness, like everybody else, Rubakin was caught short by the pro-natalist turn in Soviet policy. As the French reviewer of L'inégalité put it, 
true today, an error tomorrow. <laughs> but what's interesting to me is that, that in that book, Rubakin didn't mention the growing Russian concern from 1932 on about the rising number of abortions in the Soviet countryside, which had always been the safety net for Russia, the Russian birth rate. And those concerns about um, falling birth rate were evident in Soviet journals, in articles in Soviet journals, which I know from looking in Rubakin's papers that he was reading. So why did that happen? It may be that Rubakin was trying to filter out for the outside world information coming from Russia. Or it may also be, and this touches our topic here, that as a go-between, poised between Russia and France for over 15 years, Rubakin had simply lost touch with Russian developments. He was, as Subramanian put it, between a rock and a hard place. Do I have a few more minutes? Okay. Uh, finally, I'm going to skip something, but I thought about and I, I bothered myself with the following questions. What does this case suggest for the way in which we write a history of international health? And I found myself playing with two thought experiments, which I put at the end of the paper. Could you write the story of the spread of pronatalism and anti-abortion sentiment in France without factoring in the dust-up in the academy at which Rubakin was the center? Only one of the historians I read, Francoise Thébault, even mentioned Russia. And yet I argue Russia played a, a critical role in the French story. Bovera and his colleagues were galvanized by the proposal to legalize abortion in France, and more important, the 1933 German translation of the Kiev proceedings provided Bovera, the Conseil Supérieur de la Natalité, and even the Academy with what they considered definitive evidence of the demographic effects of legalization. Could you write the story of the 1936 Russian turn to pronatalism without factoring in the French events. David Hoffman, in his chapter on reproductive politics in cultivating the masses, modern state practices, did just that. But I think if you leave out the French interlude, you miss something. The Soviet decree of 1936 on criminalization of abortion did not mention the demographic issue. In 1937, still in Paris, Rubakin prepared a report for the World Population Congress, and Paul, it's difficult to believe it's the same Congress you're uh, talking about, in which he admitted that there had been a downturn in Soviet natality, but he insisted that legalized abortion wasn't at all related to that downturn. The report, which after all was the face of Soviet demography to the world, makes sense only in the context of the 1935 fracas. Johanna Gunteria, who is a um, postdoctoral fellow on the Verlatt Internationals Project and works on um, medical, environmental, urban history of the Soviet Union, looking in particular at, at the sort of idea of Soviet sanatoria and how they developed. Um, and I think we're in for an interdisciplinary. <laughs> yes, thank you, Anna. Uh, so when I was thinking about what to present today, I do work in public health with medicine as well, but I'm, I'm also looking at urban planning from a medical and public health perspective. And really for today, to fit this conference, I thought I would work on the um, urban planners. And we're moving chronologically forward now, although we're talking also about that same question um, that already um, comes up in the 1936 question of, of abortion. I mean, one of the justifications was that the standard of living was rising, and so women were no longer needing to turn to um, 
uh, abortion because that, that would be the reason they would turn to it because of they, they were suffering. So we're continuing that um, narrative of, of Soviet models of prosperity and um, the ways in which the Soviet model raised standards of living and the way in which um, the Soviets presented this case of um, prosperity from planning in international uh, settings. And, and specifically to the 1958 Congress of the International Architectural Union, which um, took place in Moscow. So this international meeting um, was actually the first um, meeting of architects in, that the Soviets participated in since the Stalin xenophobic period of the, of the um, post-war. Uh, the premier, Nikita Khrushchev, uh, specifically endorsed this meeting and met formally with 20 of the most prominent delegates um, to the Congress. And beyond this high profile meeting, this um, Congress also offered all sorts of opportunities for informal exchange. 1,500 architects uh, went to this conference from 44 countries. Those are in the Eastern Bloc, in the Western Bloc, and really uh, from a global reach. From the West, the United States, Great Britain, France, Italy, Portugal, Belgium, Sweden, Switzerland, the Netherlands, and West Germany sent delegates. Um, in, from the East, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Poland. And then also from Argentina, Venezuela, I'm giving a fairly long list, but you'll see it really has a global um, aspect. Venezuela, Chile, Mexico, China, Vietnam, Japan, Israel, Morocco, and Tunisia. So these are some of the dimensions of this meeting. So really, this was a showcase for two styles, uh, two models of development um, that was being presented not only in a competition of East and West, but also a competition for the hearts and minds of, this, of the South. So many Soviets came to this uh, uh, conference in Moscow to attend, um, and they encountered for the first time professionals from abroad. But they didn't only encounter professionals from abroad from the West, but they also encountered professionals from the East for the first time in many cases. And in fact, the Congress in Moscow in 1958 fits into a broader context of an opening of the Soviet Union to the West that really characterized the Khrushchev period and the period of the thaw. Um, and if, this is, if you know this historiography, there's um, a great deal of interest in the World Youth Congresses of this period as well. This is, I see this as sort of a World Congress, Youth Congress of, of architects. It was a real celebration of openness. So the, this Congress, took place in Moscow in the years of the first US-Soviet formal cultural exchanges of the Cold War period, the Lacey-Zarubin Agreement. The exchange was the most substantial formal outcome of the Gemeneva Summit of 1955. Here, I'll just take a straight out of my teaching materials. But um, Geneva Summit of 1955 with the leaders of the US, France, Great Britain, and the USSR. So the, the real reason for this Congress was to decide on the questions of disarmament and the fate of Germany. These were the formal discussion points. But it was the first summit since Potsdam. And it was, in fact, a, a meeting where all sides were very anxious about basic questions of whether the other side was pursuing peace or, or whether there would be a great deal of tensions. And this is also the first summit after the death of Stalin. So actually, the Soviet side was very, very nervous about how they would present themselves. Um, so although they failed to come to any formal agreement on, on the formal points of discussion, they both did decide that friendship was the way forward. And President Eisenhower famously announced that the people of the United States should become friends with the people of the Soviet Union. So after a few years of negotiation, the Lacey-Zarubin Agreement was signed in 1958. 
it was a mandate that exchanged, uh, that called for all kinds of exchanges of artists and writers, scientists, scholars, students, youth groups, and athletes. And it was also a turning point where Soviet membership in international professional organizations too increased a great deal. Um, while both sides endeavored to shape the cultural exchanges to their own ends, the very fact of these exchanges, these cultural exchanges, has been credited by scholars to have stimulated a peaceful competition over standards of living as opposed to a, a, a military conflict. Um, and so this competition became shifted to a question of civilizations, of standards of living, and of prosperity. Uh, but as I would like to point out in this paper, and really the argument of my paper today, is that this opening of the USSR to the West coincided with another major opening in international exchange, which also characterized this period, that between experts within the socialist world. So while earlier depictions of relations between experts within the Soviet Union and in the Eastern Bloc focused mainly on coercion, uh, new work has emphasized a really multivalent nature of socialist exchanges. And based on the study of urban design, especially Elidor Mjohili's work, who is, he has argued that post-war periods saw burgeoning exchanges in knowledge, technology, and planning instruments among socialist countries. Mjohili points to the participation of Eastern Bloc experts in the forging of an urban design within the Eastern Bloc, which unfolded through an ongoing process of exchange, so not the, really merely the imposition of a model uh, from the Soviets uh, uh, into the Eastern Bloc. Uh, so the projects of East-West cultural diplomacy, which we were used to seeing these uh, international congresses in the context of, were also a context of socialist institution building. And while we tend to see these two processes as separate in the historiography, I want to challenge that distinction that we make as something that is somewhat synthetic. Uh, the rigid separation of the process of socialist institution building and Cold War exchange structures uh, has characterized each, but in practice there was a fluid relationship between socialist contexts and east-west contexts in these international congresses and meetings, and the projects of Cold War and socialist world institution building overlapped, intersected, and developed together and in dialogue. So I argue that in this paper that Soviet participation in international organizations, which so characterized its opening to the West in this period, also had increased importance uh, between, oh, so an increased importance of cultural diplomacy between systems of the Khrushchev period, not only served to create connections between the two world systems, but also forged new and strengthened existing ties within the socialist world. And by shifting the historical focus from the perspective of foreign relations and high politics, in fact, to the perspective of the experts themselves, the Moscow architect who's meeting for the first time foreigners from Romania as well as from West Germany, by shifting our focus to the perspective of the experts themselves, this distinction between the two projects of socialist institution building and Cold War institutions of exchange really can be called into the question. Uh, so in this paper, and I'll just, I'm not going to give the whole paper now, I'll just discuss a, so a few of um, the points that I make drawing on a close reading of Soviet architectural journal, journals um, and a stenographic report of the 1958 Congress. Um, I demonstrate that actually at the Congress, this particular Congress was really instrumental in awakening Soviet, awakening Soviet interest in Bulgarian and Romanian architecture in particular and led to the forging of lasting ties between Soviet, Romanian, and Bulgarian architects, and the creation of what I describe elsewhere as a commonly held zone of peace and friendship of the peoples around the Black Sea, creating in the Black Sea literal a, a sort of collectively held uh, health resort. 
Soviet architects' new contacts with the world, particularly their immediate Eastern Bloc colleagues, had consequences in Soviet design and building, including the discovery of this shared Black Sea project of expanding access to health resort infrastructure. So now to back up to talking about the context of this Congress, the International Union of Architects uh, was founded, it is a Western organization. And my second um, argument for this paper is that the evidence presented here suggests that this Congress, while it was designed in the West as an instrument with which to undermine the socialist way of life by demonstrating Western superiority, had in fact an unintended consequence of strengthening ties between socialist countries. So the institution was founded um, as a Western organization fitting into a political landscape of the Cold War alongside the Congress for Cultural Freedom, for example, as an apparatus of struggle coordinated by the West for the minds of post-war Europe. It was a consciously non-polemical international organization of architects. Unlike the radical international modernist organization, the International Congress of Modern Architecture, the UIA had no explicit position for or against modernism, which still smacked of socialism in, in this period. Because it focused rather on the advancement of the professional status of architects, the UIA was more amenable to cultural diplomacy agendas. And at the fourth Congress of the UIA held in 1955 in The Hague, the, the Congress passed a resolution, in fact, making the intention of the organization clear that it was to attract members from socialist countries. The resolution aimed to unite architects beyond limits of race, nationality, political and ideological opinions, accepting countries from the socialist bloc as US UIA members. And this was, so this was not merely a benign um, friendship organization, but it was one advocating peaceful connections, but one that was meant to showcase Western superiority. The 1958 UIA Congress in Moscow was really an, a very early Cold War competition over living standards. Here, it was for the first time an American kitchen, for example, was put on display in an exhibition that was organized by the American Institute of Architects at Moscow State University. This was a full year between the famous kitchen debates and the second kitchen, as I found, that was opened at the American exhibition in Moscow. So the first kitchen had an 82-panel photographic display of what was most typical in US architecture. Um, and it was the first exhibit of US building in the USSR since World War II. And I should mention that the, the theme of this Congress was actually post-war reconstruction. As Time Magazine reported, the exhibit drew some 4,000 visitors daily. It was largely focused on architecture for automobile transportation based on the figure of 60 million cars in America and included a display of Los Angeles expressways, multi-parking garages, and motels. So this was the, so, uh, the American <laughs> model. In his report describing the AIA exhibition, American architect Henry Churchill argued, quote, it may be said that the major urban problem is to rebuild our cities so that there will be a place for both the automobile and for people. We're living with this legacy in the United States now. It is to this problem that almost all our city planning experiments are addressed. The Soviet side also sought to put, present itself in the best possible light, while also using the Congress as a way to learn about new developments and technologies abroad, an ongoing factor driving Soviet participation in international exchanges. They also put up their own exhibition on the new Soviet urban planning tied to destalinization, now some four years old. So this is really cutting edge uh, material that they're presenting here. 
It marked a really radical departure from the Stalinist past and also a tentative reconsideration of their own avant-garde Soviet heritage. In his report to the Congress, Nikolai Baranov, a fellow of the Construction and Architecture Academy of the USSR, made the Cold War context of the Congress as a competition over living standards explicit. He argued that Congress offered a showcase of two social systems, quote, the capitalist system and the socialist system, and served as a forum for peaceful competition between these systems over living standards, quote, while working in entirely different social conditions, but guided by a single noble purpose, in the not too distant future, we, the rising generation, will be able to judge who has attained the greatest success in providing for the needs of the urban population. The significant presence at the Congress of Architects from the Third World meant that this competition also had global dimensions. And here, the contrast with the parking and car focus of the Americans was made explicit. Karo Alabian, a leading Soviet architect of the Stalin era, argued to the Congress, quote, housing is the most important social problem facing society today. In analyzing reports presented at the UIA Congress, it also becomes clear that Soviet architects and architects from other socialist countries were learning a great deal about developments in each other's countries as well. Indeed, most of the reports presented to the Congress were based on a close analysis of UIA questionnaires themselves that were filled out by all participating countries, including the socialist countries. These questionnaires were an important mechanism for the initial exchange of information at the Congress, both within the socialist world and between systems. For example, in his report, Ruben Tonyev, head of the Town Planning Institute of the Bulgarian Academy of Sciences, listed each question from the questionnaire in his report and analyzed the answers that were given within the socialist countries, um, pointing to both commonalities and major differences. Vyacheslav Shvarikov, the director of the Institute for Town Planning, in his report drew on information from questionnaires as well. In fact, the majority of reports made to the Congress were prepared almost exclusively on the basis of the questionnaires, which I found quite surprising. And while reports from socialist architects were perhaps meant to demonstrate a unified front to the West, in practice, the reports actually highlighted the great differences in practices of urban planning and architecture in the socialist countries, going into great detail. But the whole point I am making here is that all reports of the Congresses Congress were based to some degree on an analysis of UIA questionnaires, which were an important mechanism of exchange of knowledge not only between East and West, but also within the socialist world. Also, there were differences in the questionnaire itself. There were two copies, one in French and one in Russian, and the questions were slightly different. So. The 1958 Congress marked an important turning point in Soviet architecture as Soviet architects became increasingly aware of what made the socialist system different from the capitalist system in practice. And they were starting to work that out, in fact, in the Congress. It was also a turning point in Soviet relationships with architects in other socialist countries. Indeed, architects interacted simultaneously with Western and Eastern architects, as well as architects from the third world, forging not only one set of contexts or the other, but all simultaneously. And after this converse, the pages of the main journal of the Soviet Union of Architects, Architektura SSSR, started to cover extensively um, architecture and urban planning in the other socialist countries and sent many delegations abroad who came back in, with extensive reports. So as I describe in my paper, the period after the 1958 Congress saw a marked increase in interest in the Soviet Union, in particular in health resort developments on the Romanian and Bulgarian coasts of the Black Sea. And now I really do want to point out that 
in, in, in the context of this, in the paper, I talk a lot more about the relationship between Soviet ideas of urban planning and health. So this is really how it's, it fits into our discussion um, as well. Um, in conclusion, this, I have related domestic architectural policies to policies of the socialist world and to the Cold War, showing through the lens of the Black Sea how each scale of activity influenced and was interconnected with the other. Indeed, an aim of this paper is to blur the distinctions that are often made between these scales. The experience of UIA Soviet delegates calls into question the separation in the historical literature between the projects of the forging of the socialist world and the Cold War world. In practice, there was a fluid relationship between the socialist context and east-west context in international organizations, and the projects of Cold War and socialist world cultural diplomacy overlapped, intersected, and developed together and in dialogue. The historiography has reinforced what I see as an at times synthetic divide between the world's socialist and capitalist. And the evidence presented here further suggests that the UIA Congresses, designed in the West as an instrument with which to undermine the socialist way of life, had the unintended consequence of strengthening ties between socialist countries. The boys from the Soviet Empire, um, who works on the history of sci sciences in um, socialist Eastern Europe, in particular in Czechoslovakia and, um, and GDR. Um, and she's also a, a Bergberg based uh, research fellow on the Hidden Persuaders project. Thank you, Anna, and thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I work, as Anna mentioned, uh, partly on East Germany, partly on Czechoslovakia. I've also written on um, British history of mental health. But I find increasingly that when I come to conferences, I just want to talk about Czechoslovakia because I really feel that it is very much an outsider, very much historiographically forgotten about, and particularly in terms of the Cold War, um, it was incredibly important. My paper, I'm going to speak to the paper that I circulated, um, but I want to make two major arguments, um, which is that whilst historiographically Czechoslovakia is an outsider, I'd say that it is an insider in many ways, uh, both in terms of the participation of mental health professionals, and I'll, I'll speak specifically about mental health because that's my area of expertise, uh, within the international scientific and medical communities um, outside of the Soviet sphere, but also contrary to um, many of the, the standard narratives and periodizations that we have about Czechoslovakia in relation to the Soviet Union, um, I would argue that in terms of science and medicine um, and mental health, there's actually more continuity between um, the periodizations of Czechoslovakia with the Soviet Union uh, during the Cold War than is normally accounted for, which is partly because historians tend not to look at science and medicine in Czechoslovakia. They look at dissidents, they look at high politics, students, etc. So writing medicine and science back in um, to the history I think is a very helpful thing to do in terms of understanding the role within the broader Soviet sphere as well. Czechoslovakia um, didn't have the same degree of Soviet oversight in terms of reorganisation of um, higher education, research and health that its neighbour East Germany did. Uh, and this is partly because East Germany had been occupied by the Soviets. Um, but I wonder also whether this is in part because uh, Czechoslovakia technically, um, voluntarily uh, opted for a communist regime. And, I mean, this is one of the big debates. Was there a takeover? Was it, um, 
was it a genuine free election? But certainly um, the, the rhetoric um, around the 1948 uh, victorious February is that um, the elections showed that there was a substantial um, popular support for joining the Soviet sphere. Um, nevertheless, it held a liminal position between East and West, both obviously geographically, Prague is further west than Vienna, um, but also in terms of the cultural and intellectual basis of um, understandings and practice in mental health. Um, if you want to know more about public health specifically, I'd recommend going to look at Bradley Mathis Moore's um, work. Um, he wrote an excellent paper in um, Social History of Medicine, I think in 2011. Um, and unfortunately, this remains one of the, um, the few sort of scattered articles here and there on um, health in Czechoslovakia. In terms of mental health, the, the narratives that we have, there's actually almost no substantial research published on mental health in Czechoslovakia, full stop for the entire period. Um, um, but the narratives that we have that have come through from um, major scholars of the history of the human sciences, one is a narrative of absence, that uh, the side disciplines, psychological therapies, only really emerge after 1989. Um, another um, is one of top-down control from the Moscow Centre and the idea of stultification, that everything had to be Pavlovian and therefore um, pluralism was, was not allowed and therefore variation didn't develop. And I'd challenge both of these very significantly. I think both are not drawn in any way from primary material. Um, and I'd say almost entirely the opposite is the case. Um, this, the top-down control idea, I'm sure I don't need to explain to anybody in this room, is, is incredibly problematic. Um, and other um, scholars have challenged it. Um, particular Austin Yersild has looked at the way in which um, you could see the, the colonial relationship between the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia as one almost of imperial plundering. There's a, there's a level of expertise in Czechoslovakia in certain areas of science which is potentially more um, well developed in the early post-Cold uh, War period um, than the Soviets themselves have. And so there's, there's um, significant um, examples of knowledge flow and exchange going in the opposite direction and not necessarily top-down from Moscow outwards. And this is in part due to the, um, the pre-war, um, all the way from the 19th century onwards, um, history of science and medicine in the Czech and Slovak lands. There's a strong influence of um, German culture and science, um, most Czech and Slovak um, practitioners and researchers would be fluent in German. Um, they frequently, in the interwar period, had significant exchange with Britain and with France. Uh, one of their most significant neurologists, Ladislav Haskovich, was one of the many um, uh, mental health professionals to go and study with Charcot at the Salpetria in Paris, for example. And you can see from the continued publication of key journals during the Second World War that throughout the occupation there's actually an enormous amount of resilience of the healthcare professions in terms of continuing to practice and in, in terms of continuing to actually um, have professional conferences, being able to engage in debate, continuing with research under um, Nazism. And this obviously has a legacy for the Cold War period. Um, the majority of healthcare professionals um, from the sources that I have 
do not have Russian as um, a foreign language, they're more likely to have French or German, uh, which Dora's nodding is probably the case for much of the region. Um, so again, I'm, I'm, so far I've been placing it very much in this kind of central European role, the, the con continu continuities with the West being kind of stronger. But there certainly are cases in which uh, we have to countenance the influence of uh, Soviet Russia and the attempts of particular individuals, party members, high-ranking politicians, who themselves were also doctors, often neurologists actually, um, to attempt to Sovietize or um, borrow Soviet models uh, for the reform of Czechoslovak healthcare services. Um, key to this was Stenjek Matsek, uh, who was a, a neurologist, a specialist in um, the treatment of uh, the prophylactic treatment of neuroses. And the reform in mental health care didn't really happen until 1951. Um, and this was particularly around centralization of funding and resources and an encouragement of Pavlovian approaches, encouragement of sleep therapy, but also the idea that researchers should. Uh, use Pavlovian models within um, their development of new kinds of therapy. Um, again, from conversations that I've had with Dora, one thing that is immensely striking is the degree to which these attempts at reform programmes actually end up being letters sent out from the Ministry of Health to the various psychiatric hospitals across uh, the Czech and Slovak lands actually asking for information about what the asylums are doing and what kind of research is available is often actually fact-finding as much as it is attempts to reform. Um, and so the letter is sent out from the Ministry of Health. The, um, the major psychiatry journal has guides for what psychiatry professionals should do to fill out these forms and what kind of information the state wants from them. And then they all write back explaining that actually they're more interested in insulin coma therapy or electroconvulsive therapy. And often, actually, um, from the early 1950s, an immensely enthusiastic uptake of psychopharmaceuticals from the West. Uh, so the antipsychotics, tranquilizers, etc., and then later um, amphetamines, Psychoton, uh, which we call Benzedrine, um, was immensely popular, um, and particularly with the uh, state security services because it, it makes people talk quite rapidly. Um, and so this was something that was used both in, widely in healthcare. It was um, given to Clement Gottwald frequently, the president, um, by his personal physician who counterintuitively was actually a psychoanalyst, a member of the International Psychoanalytic Association. Um, so what, one of the things that I was quite surprised to find was both the, um, the unashamed enthusiastic take-up of these Western technologies, um, pharmaceutical technologies, which were then mass-produced through the state um, uh, pharmaceutical companies, and then often actually um, Spoffa was the, the Czech producer, then um, exported to the rest of the region. So again, this continuity over East and West and um, the permeability of the, the so-called Iron Curtain being striking. Um, nevertheless, there were attempts to try and develop a Pavlovian approach to mental health. And what's striking here is that our historiography of actually Soviet um, Russian um, 
mental health is, is still very scarce. Um, I, there's some excellent work done by my colleague Ben Zajacek. Uh, there's a brilliant PhD student currently at the University of East Anglia, um, Alexandra Brockman, who is going to um, regional uh, psychiatric hospitals and looking at what kinds of psychotherapy were developed um, on a day-to-day -day basis. And often there is a lot of use of hypnosis therapy, but there's also use of French rational therapies drawing from people like Dubois. So um, we know also that uh, in Soviet Russia there was widespread use of insulin shock therapy, that ECT was used. Um, but the, the prescriptive technique was um, sleep therapy. The problem with Pavlovian sleep therapy is that it requires patients who may be suffering, suffering from schizophrenia or from uh, various neurotic disorders uh, to be put to sleep for very long periods of time, um, which in a psychiatric hospital is extremely difficult. You're trying to put a patient to sleep for sort of 12 hours, 16 hours or longer. Psychiatric hospitals are very noisy. You often have to resort to using uh, pharmaceuticals in order to assist with this process, and it becomes increasingly difficult to actually carry it out in practice. But the problem is that Pavlov himself didn't really write much about human psychology and psychiatry until really the last five years of his life, if you look at the Daniel Toder's um, biography recently written. And so in terms of a body of texts that um, mental health care professionals are able to use as a basis for trying to build um, and develop on Pavlov's thought for a new um, practical regime of treatment, it, it's incredibly difficult um, when you don't have much of a basis to use. So there's a certain degree of kind of extrapolation going on. Can we reframe the way in which we talk about um, psychopharmaceuticals in Pavlovian terms, for example? One thing which strikes me that happened in Czechoslovakia, which also happened in the Soviet Union, and according to my co uh, colleague Karina Dobosh in Romania, and I also have sources for East Germany, um, is the um, revival of the concept of neurasthenia, um, which is one of the neuroses that Pavlov identifies uh, within his dogs, actually. He, he in, um, artificially produces neurasthenia in uh, some of his experiments with dogs, uh, which most historians of medicine see as falling out of use before the Second World War. Um, but I think in part because Pavlov used it, it had a long life within the Soviet region. And I think this also was to do with the way in which it could be co-opted uh, for the process of um, professionalization or defending professional interests. Because if you think about it, really under communism, you shouldn't need psychiatrists or neurologists. You, you are living under um, actually achieved socialism and therefore these problems should no longer exist for society. But what you do have is the scientific technological revolution of the late 1950s and early 60s. You have the five-year plans. You have new technologies in factories and, and new types of working process which haven't fully yet been developed. They're still being um, tested out. And these, in turn, through the process of industrialization, create civilizational disorders. And I think that the idea of a civilizational disorder here is actually something to kind of be proud of. Um, it means that you're doing socialism properly. Um, and the difference between um, the Soviet East and um, the West, which also suffers from the neurasthenia and civilizational disorders, is that um, the Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia, other countries of the region 
invest in prophylaxis, prophylaxis being the key foundation of um, healthcare, um, and the development and innovation of new um, psychotherapies, particularly um, autogenic uh, self-hypnosis therapies, again, which actually draw on various different theories, including yoga theories, but become um, uh, framed within this Pavlovian narrative. So this is one um, continuity that you can see across um, the entire Soviet region, I would say. Another is um, the uptake of the idea of cybernetics. And this, this really doesn't happen properly until after 1956. Um, again, a standard narrative of Czechoslovakia is that it has a delayed destalinization process. Um, whereas the Soviet Union has Khrushchev's secret speech in 1956, and then there's a sort of relaunching of the Soviet project. Um, many historians argue that this didn't really happen in Czechoslovakia until 61 because the regime themselves had been so um, involved in show trials. So in order, it, if they were to de-Stalinize, they themselves would have to, um, they themselves would become compromised. Whereas I think because there's a level of lack of control over health, um, and science. Um, you see immediately in 1956 the, the pronouncements about um, following um, a Soviet model or following Pavlovian or Stalinist um, concepts actually get very explicitly challenged in 1956-57 very, very publicly. And they, um, they make use of um, Kovrigina, the, the Soviet Minister of Health as a way of um, defending their critiques of um, the former um, models that were promoted. And from then on, you actually get a, a real kind of wide opening of um, pluralism. So you'll, you'll get explicit psychoanalytic um, research carried out. And also in, in practice, the state funded a 20-year um, psychoanalytic-based LSD psychotherapy project from 1954. Um, it didn't really become psychoanalytic till after, but all the way through till 1974, which draws from Otto Rank and various others. Um, but yet, I'd say that this uptake and attempt to use particular metaphors, such as cybernetics, is still a way of trying to continue to build this Pavlovian idea of mental health. Um, Pavlov himself used the idea of the, um, the telephone switchboard um, and scientists in the West, such as Gray Walter, um, made use of the um, new, newly um, uh, new technologies of robotics, essentially. Um, so man-machine models, um, the cybernetic tortoise. Um, and this is very much presented in a way of trying to further the metaphors that Pavlov gave us. Um, so you can see there's a, a degree to which um, Pavlov becomes a way of trying to relaunch um, the Soviet project um, in Soviet terms after 1956 in Czechoslovakia as much as it is, is, is in the Soviet Union. One other... Um, research that I'd like to mention, Olzich Stary, uh, again a, a neurologist and a Communist Party member who later became the rector of Charles University um, in the 60s. 
um, is another one of the few to make explicit um, links with the Soviet Union and actually China. Um, so whereas most researchers, I'd say, were travelling towards the West uh, for conferences, Study um, deliberately um, went to Moscow and then on to China um, in 1959. And one of the things that he brought back was acupuncture um, and traditional Chinese medicine, um, which is very striking. It gets taken up um, with quite a lot of enthusiasm, um, is written into the um, Ministry of Health's um, uh, list of uh, um, encouraged therapies, and there's a, a long-term um, clinic for acupuncture at Brno Bohunitsa, which is the second city um, of Czechoslovakia, or the Czech lands, um, which I think actually still exists today. And this is a huge contrast with the GDR, where um, there's a ceremonial destruction of acupuncture needles, where it's claimed that it's um, actually all idealistic. Um, and so again, it's one of those many arguments for why you should never see the Soviet bloc as, as being a bloc. There's, there's very significant variation across different countries of the region. Um, so just to very quickly conclude, um, I would say that the impact of Sovietization per se on practice was very much limited. But this in itself shows that our assumptions about what we mean by Sovietization in terms of mental health and health in particular are very problematic. Um, there was no one model of Soviet mental health care. Um, and the, the breadth that we see in Czechoslovakia and the uptake of um, psychotherapeutics and other technologies from the West, actually I'd say is probably um, also very much true of the Soviet Union from the evidence that we have so far. And in that way, both Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union itself are still outsiders historiographically in terms of histories of mental health. Thank you. So much of this, these insider-outsider labels are performative, aren't they? They're about decorations, about... We know now the kind of, something about the role of international conferences in this whole new international world um, of, of the interwar and post-war eras. But something about insiders and outsiders is about flagging it up, making a mark at these big gatherings of many different delegates. And I wonder whether... That, I mean, there's obviously a lot more going on. Um, uh, but I wonder to what extent... The, the, you, you, you can identify with this performative side of it. Um, doesn't really fit. Sorry, Sarah, Sarah I did not include him in this. So interesting, Jessica, because of course, I mean, it's, it's tempting to say that a lot of the activity of what I call the strangers or the representatives is performative. But in fact, the reason I put the Congress of 1935 out at the center of the paper is because it's a radical break with what Rubakin and his counterparts in Germany, in England, in Italy are trying to do, which is not uh, to disrupt or to engage in a public way, but to build slowly networks of researchers to insert themselves wherever they could uh, in a way which would suggest we're not uh, outsiders, we're not coming in in a way which will um, shock you. 
but we are part of you. We could be part of you. And it's that, I mean, I'm just thinking, if I can just redirect for a minute, I was listening to you, Johanna, with such interest. The competitive approach, it did not characterize the 20s to early 30s. There was nothing against which the Soviets, when they went to Geneva, they didn't say, we are better than you. We are like you. Let us in. I think that's a major difference. But I, you know, I, I get the performative question. But I think if one looked at the activity of these representatives over a large spectrum, it's a minor part, part of their activity, not one that they would themselves favor. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still thinking about how to re respond because I see the Congresses. Um, in the context of the other institutions of opening, so tourism, for example, is also a process of opening the borders and allowing um, Soviets into the West. Um, and it's true that these um, anyone who had contact with, in, uh, with international experts or counterparts, they were they were vetted, and they were at least tourists, for example, were uh, they were. They were trained in how to talk about the Soviet Union, what to discuss, how to represent themselves, how to behave, to behave in a, in a sort of well-mannered way. Mm -hmm. And um, so there is a, perf a performing of their like, cultural achievements and a performance of, um, but it's sort of in a personal, um, to be personally representing the state, essentially. But um, when I think of this Congress in the context of, of the development of architecture, the de-Stalinization of architecture, it um, and this, the relish with which the architects um, embraced contact with architects abroad, and um, it's it seems that it was actually a very earnest contact um, and a real celebration of of the post-Stalinist sort of thaw. They were experiencing the thaw in this way, and so in that regard. I, my, I, I feel there's a, there's a tension between the need to represent the Soviet Union in the best possible light and this real openness and real curiosity and really earnest exchange. Uh, and that's, it's part of that sort of the falling away of the performance that I think makes that distinction between the socialist experts and the experts in the West sort of more clear. They're, just, they're, they're interested in getting to know experts from all over the world. And um, so... I wouldn't say that, at least in this Congress, that, that performance was um, the, the leading card. It was, it, was, it was more of a genuine opening and, and um, engagement with de-Stalinization, so I think. What you know, the context in which which health was uh, uh, operated in, and, and also who was you know, discussing it as, as, uh, you know, from a historiographical perspective. Historians of medicine don't tend to look at you know what architects are talking about usually, only very directly. And of course, there are like literature, hospital architecture, and and, and architecture for health, but not. You know, from, from this completely from this other way around, and and well, Sarah, it's, it's for you. It's completely explicit that, and and as, as uh, anyone working on um, 
health in Eastern Europe know that these narratives are completely missing from, from the historiography and the, these, are, these, are outside, these stories are outsiders to, to a broader um, discussion as well. And Susan, you also mentioned this kind of omission from historiography, these, these, these moments and these, from, both from, you know, from both sides, from, from Eastern looking inward um, and both East and West. So I was, I was, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we can think more a bit more about certain questions being outsiders, not, not just actors being outsiders, but but, but the but outsiders of, of, in historiography. And um, my question is um, for for uh, uh, Johanna is, you mentioned that the, um, there were these two questionnaires in two different languages, and they were slightly different. And I already had that, you know, like. That's interesting. Well, first of all, why, why the, the questions are slightly different, but also knowing what what, uh, what Sarah also um, mentioned that uh, Russian is really not like the strong language in Eastern Europe at this time. I mean, really, it's it's French, German, and English that, that people are communicating even within the bloc. So, so how, I was wondering if if you would like. Where the where the Eastern Bloc, you know, architects and, and organizations are, were they something like the French um, ones, and, and how that why why that difference, and mm -hmm. if you can address that that kind of language issue in this. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Well, first on the um, maybe I'll I'll start at that um, on the first question that um, so I mean really I am interested in architects discussing health and architects and urban planners engaging with questions of health. And I do think this is part of the socialist model of public health, that the urban planners and architects were deeply engaged in questions of health and were very close to physicians working together collaboratively to create healthy environments tied to a very environmental approach to health in the, Eastern, in the Soviet Union. And, and so, what they were describing actually in this Congress was, I mean, they, they were discussing health. This was one of their, their first topics, was how to create a healthy neighborhood where all of those services were integrated into the urban plan, including a lot of green space for health. Um, and it was, it was this, the contrast was so stark reading the, the reports next to each other, the American side talking about parking and the West and the uh, Soviet side discussing, you know, creating, and they were very focused on, a, on, a, on an urban environment that would increase longevity. So if you created the, the most healthy city possible, people would uh, live longer. And um, so they're, they're very close to those ideas and this is, it, it is, how I came to study urban planning is because I saw that how engaged they actually were um, in the question of creating a healthy city and, and ameliorating the, 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 the effects of industrialization. Um, and yeah, so it's a, it is an interesting question, sort of how to, um, how to um, integrate this, di this really stark difference of the Soviet model of, of health into our discussions in history of medicine or history of urban planning or environmental history, which is what I do. And I end up sort of presenting it all, all around. But um, uh, so, and in terms of the, the questionnaire, um, I, I don't have that much, I, I did, it was, it's mentioned in fragments, but I believe that most of the Eastern Bloc um, 
participants are filling out the French questionnaire. Um, I think the Bulgarians are using the Russian one, um, <laughs> which didn't make sense. But, um, and the difference mostly was it seems that um, some of the French questions were embedded, so very long questions, and they were broken down into pieces, into separate questions in the Russian uh, uh, questionnaire. But it seems that they were especially pressing in the Russian questionnaire questions, um, and this is sort of points to that sort of Western orient, um, origin of the UIA. There are questions about um, democratic participation in urban planning questions and processes. So what sort of civil institutions are involved in, in planning urban spaces. So um, and in terms of, um, it seems that, uh, I, I, I unfortunately can't really speak more about it just because I only saw that, those fragments that there are the two, the two different languages, but yeah. Let me uh, come at your question, Dora, about whether or not the Soviets were outsiders, because that, I think, is one that's interested me for a long time, and I hope some of the audience, too. Um, the I have two difficulties with thinking about them as outsiders. First, the main one is that they never thought of themselves as outsiders. They simply thought they hadn't yet breached certain international organizations. They weren't invited as much as they wanted. Um, and that some journals were close to them, some meetings were close to them, but they never formulated it as we are outsiders. And what's interesting to me, again, the, the book that I cited, it would be case closed if the Soviets had either an approach of superiority uh, or one of inferiority. But the same Soviet spokesman in different contexts could express a sense of our, our plan for this is superior. Oh, we don't have that kind of technology. We're not quite up to standard. So there's a sense of being continually off balance. The second thing I think I really want to emphasize, let's simply use language uh, in a commonsensical way. If I come, if you come to see me in Canada and I am not a British subject, you won't say to me, you are an outsider. You come to see me and you engage me in my home turf. The only time you might call me an outsider is if I attempt to come to the UK and show up and present myself as someone who is native. In other words, the minute you think about the term outsider as a term, he's already partly in. And I think that's how I think of the Soviets. On a spectrum, if they were outsiders, we wouldn't be talking about them. Reichman wouldn't be trying to get their data and get their health experts involved. The Rockefeller wouldn't be reaching out to them. So there's something about outsiders, which for me doesn't quite take account of the fact that they were partly inside. But that's, that's why I like Zimmel, because that stranger may leave tomorrow. He may leave of his own accord, or he may be kicked out of an organization. But for the meantime, he's there. He's not like the wanderer, but he is. Uh, at least partly on the scene, never mind insiders, outsiders. Let me just throw that out and see what it, what, what it gets from people. Hmm. Could I respond as well? Um, I, I think in um, response to what you were just saying, thinking that through in terms of um, Czechoslovak culture, um, they, there's very much a sense in which they did 
consider themselves and still do often, and I, I don't wish to stereotype too much, um, as outsiders and desperately wish to overcome it. Uh, so I think there's a degree to which this, bo in both directions, desperately wanting to be part of international health communities, being, being part of international scientific communities, learning English, learning French, learning German, travelling to the West, but then also the ones who become Communist Party members um, learn Russian, go and speak in China. There's, there's a, a big sense of marginalisation, and I think in terms of their political history, in terms of victimisation as well, um, and a, a lack of recognition of the value of what they can contribute to the world. And that actually becomes a huge driving force for them then becoming linked up and innovating and producing all this stuff. And I think, I don't know, I, I feel I feel this sort of sense of, you can probably see it coming through my own histori historiography here, but I have a certain degree of sympathy for that. You know, the, um, I think um, even now, the fact that this is still being kind of written out of the history is, is a, a big disservice um, to the real, real kind of um, level of um, engagement and intellectual development and cultural development that happened in this part of Europe um, during the 20th century. So, yeah. Retelling that kind of top-down narrative, which now becomes a kind of strawman argument, at least in this room. Um, but um, but but sort of turning it on its head and saying, well, actually, there was a lot of um, lots of lots of, lots of expertise traveling from Central and Eastern Europe to the Soviet Union. And I wonder if that is the case with your Soviet architects in 1958, as they introduce um, as they're introduced to both Western and East European architects. Is that is that that kind of a um, a kind of colonial relationship in, in, in the other direction. But I was just wondering, in, in, in a broader sense, could we talk about, when we talk about the Soviet sphere and the, the Eastern Bloc, is that, you know, and if we think about that strange traveling of expertise from, from Central and Eastern Europe to the Soviet Union, can we talk about the Soviets as sort of outsiders um, within the Eastern Bloc it, itself as a sort of, a, and, and also both having a superiority and inferiority complex when they, when they talk with the Hungarians, with the Czechs and, and, and with the Poles and, and sort of perhaps with the Yugoslavs, definitely not with Bulgarians, but um, as, a, as a sort of, so I, I'm just, I was just thinking about that, that the joke was about Bulgarians, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the superiority in the sense that they are bringing the revolution, they're bringing the, sort of the, 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 the final stage of, of enlightenment and development to, to, to Eastern Bloc, but at the same time, in priority, as, as, as you said, there's so, so much expertise that the Soviets feel like they need to learn from the Bloc. Sorry. In terms of, um, well, this in, it's a very interesting relationship to Bulgaria and Romania because the Soviet sort of legal... Um, apparatus of allowing paid vacations to workers creates in some ways mass tourism in Bulgaria and Romania, which was mostly like middle class and upper class until um, mm. the socialist uh, sort of regime came. Um, and so in that regard, it really um, was bringing the revolution uh, to Bulgaria and Romania. Um, and creating a new scale. But then they saw actually what uh, Bulgarian and Romanian architects were doing, and it was 
very much an interest in their their innovation and um, their um, different more uh, approach to the built environment. And so they they send delegations to Bulgaria to Romania and bring back all sorts of new ideas. They're very interested. For example, the Romanians are um, developing seismic technology because of um, the threat of, of earthquakes there. And so they're interested in what the Romanians are de developing in that field. Um, and they bring back some of that technology. So um, I think it is a, a sort of, but then they're recognizing that the creation of the mass health resort nevertheless is a Soviet creation. So it is a tension between, um, between the two sides. What fun that suggestion is. I'm thinking to myself, if one could read down in the documents and find the Soviets going to international meetings or having exchanges with their colleagues in Eastern Europe and in, in the West, what would they say when they came home? Would they, I'm mean, just thinking, would they say, uh, we went with the following uh, experience behind us, but we were uh, quite stunned by what the Czechs or the Bulgarians were doing, or would it be a matter of pride for them to say, we went with the following experience, but we were quite stunned by what the Germans were doing. And always I remember the, the statement, it's our Germans versus your Germans. I remember hearing that uh, when I was in Russia. And I think that, you know, one would have to really drill down in those documents, I don't know. Actually, it's true that they're talking about, um, they also learn about new developments in France. There's Languedoc uh, Ocean, this mess um, resort that's being built, and they learn about that. And they, they, they really are, in some ways, just assimilating from both yeah. uh, and contributing to both uh, models. Um, I, one example which sprung to mind, um, which I, I'm trying to disentangle, is the the most well-known Soviet psychiatrist um, is uh, Andrei Snezhnevsky, um, much maligned, involved in um, the, this diagnosis of sluggish schizophrenia and um, very much involved in the political abuse of psychiatry. Um, but there's, there's interesting things going on with Snezhnevsky because he, um, he actually was very closely linked with an East German um, psychiatrist, Karl Leonhard, who had a remarkably similar uh, longitudinal approach to schizophrenia and the idea that schizophrenia could develop gradually. And Leonhard's research in turn was actually developed in the 1930s in Frankfurt, like there was nothing Soviet about it at all. Um, and there's, there's letters between the two, uh, Snuzhnevsky and his team come over, um, and they also meet with Norwegians. And so even the kind of archetypal big bad Soviet psychiatrist actually uh, was looking to justify his psychiatry and, and theories through um, these superior Germans, in a way. Um, so it, it's always much more messy than you think. Maria and then Laura. Yes, just very brief response to uh, Susan's previous, let's say, provocation of uh, inside, uh, uh, insiders and outsiders. Um, along the line of Susan, oh, for Sarah, um, uh, who commented um, uh, just after your publication. Um, I, I would say that um, being an insider does not necessarily mean having the same influence. Having the same influence with, with the others. Uh, yes, you are an insider, but how much influence do you have 
And the question is, uh, upon whom do you have, do you want to have this influence? Um, uh, this is the one question that we have to, um, to, to think about it. And of course, uh, along the line of Sarah, I mean, um, is the contribution of the insiders um, uh, is, um, is recognized in the same way as the contribution of the, let's say, the main um, or the powerful uh, players, if I may um, say so. Uh, so um, the insiders, uh, this, this, let's say, distinction, insider and outsider, is, as you said at the beginning, uh, not uh, cemented, let's say. It, has, it doesn't have uh, cemented borders, let's say. Um. Argue that uh, that I, I would think that the Soviets are, are outsiders. I think, but I think there are two 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 issues here. The the question of of this inside outsider or stranger, as thinking about like in, in you know being in the moment contemporarily in the interwar era or the early Cold War, but there's also the outsider to a historiography of international health and you, you know which which is which it, it is um, uh, apart from moments of like really well-known moments of smallpox eradication or you know what where the Soviet Union comes up and shines and you know like but then the <coughs> person, it's, it's the Americans do it um, it's, it's, it's these, these narratives are completely missing and they are considered as outsiders to to what we call international health and uh, and obviously none of none of us in the room think so um, which is partly why, why we're here but 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 I'm also interested in how we get there that these narratives completely fall out and, and completely disappear even though they're much more thought about much more critically at in the moment historical uh, periods are really important here I mean we don't want to generalize over tremendously long period because there are important nuances of difference. I see even between what Johanna's describing you know, from 53 on, say, to, to the 70s, that's largely speaking one period, 1921 to 37, there are a variety of periods. I, I guess, Dora, my question is when we talk about outsiders, or insiders, do we, are we looking for Leading figures? Are we looking for paradigm disruptors? Are we looking for paradigm confirmers? I mean, how do we judge exactly what the contribution is? I know, I mean, I have confidence that the Soviets, certainly in the first 15 years after the fledgling regime was founded, saw themselves as moving forward and hoped that they would be, not only that they would be fully accepted, but that what they thought they had to offer international public health would be recognized as such. That, that, from all the documents I read, seems to me quite clear. Seems to me quite clear. And the final question? Oh, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's always the, the same question. Is um, your dear Rubak in Euquis uh, Partly, outsider and uh, insider, but the same is true of the Rockefeller resident directors. They, are, they fit your definition of the, of the stranger. They come uh, today and stay tomorrow, up to the point 
of uh, coming as advisors or staying as uh, administrators. They seem to know by the way it's in English or etc. etc. So at the end, what what is specifically Soviet? You what in in, in the like in case or in, in others you may have in mind. If you are so I'm thinking not of Norman Blake. Let me think about Alan Gray, who goes around fact finding. There's a okay. This is my own personal. No, no. There's a specific point. Alan Gray, I think, leaves initially for Russia, thinking that he has a way of doing public health business. But in his diary, he writes that when he gets there, he loses his sense of mooring, that he feels, I and mean, this is one of the most interesting things I've found, that he's off balance. And the further away he is from New York, the more he feels he doesn't really know. So would he be like the stranger? Not quite. I, th I think of him as a fact finder. Uh, he's going to figure it out. I don't think Rubakin is a fact finder. I think he's engaged in cultural diplomacy. I think that's what the Soviets were doing. Uh, he has to scope out the local situation, figure out where he can make inroads. Maybe, I mean, that's a quick answer, Leon. I'm sure it's not as reflective as I'd like it to be, but it might, it might work to push the discussion further. I don't know. Um, I was going to quickly comment um, or raise some more questions from Dora's comment. Um, one of the things that still strikes me is that I think for Hungary as well, um, in fact the only exception I can think of is East Germany, is that in terms of historiography, the people who are writing about history of medicine, often apart from yourself, but you went to the States to do your PhD, often are external in some way. Um, so th there's a handful of historians um, in the Czech Republic at the moment. I'm not sure there's any in Slovakia. Um, but the, the main people are either in the US or here or Finland, um, for example. And so there isn't really a homegrown historiography going on. And then why would, for example, British historians necessarily look at that part of the world or German historians necessarily. Um, so I wonder why, whether that's one of the reasons, and I can't account for why that, that's the case. You may have a better perspective in terms of Hungary. Well, and that there's, a, there's a different layer of outsiders, but I also want to say that the historians are themselves outsiders. Well, I'd make a, a final comment about the question of what makes Soviet uh, medicine distinctive. It's a, it's a question that you can always go back to. It's the well that keeps on pouring. And it's, um, I, I've recently been rooting Soviet health policy beyond 1917 in discussions of the Second International and actually finding that these are shared socialist roots um, in many of these approaches. Well, social hygiene is certainly one that goes beyond 1917. Um, and that we can see the Soviet version um, of sort of their approach to medicine as, as a variant not only of sort of Western uh, traditions of medicine, but also a variant of what is our, a distinctive socialist approach to health um, that you can trace back. Um, and 
part of this is the focus on prevention and um, this, but it's not distinctively socialist, but it's, it's unleashed by the state from above, by the, by the Soviets when, it, um, when the Bolsheviks take power. So it, it, it's, um, there's more, um, more focus on prevention. And then what I see as distinctive in, and in, this, in my interdisciplinary work, um, I see they have more potential to work in urban planning because of the land reforms. And, that you have in the Soviet case that you don't have um, elsewhere. The Weimar Republic never manages to nationalize their health resorts, whereas the Soviets take over the health resorts, take build new cities, and so they have more scope to work um, in in more directions with their environmental approach to health. So, can I just have one come back at that question? Because <laughs> no, 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 no. I think it's really uh, intriguing. When any of the Rockefeller officers went out, uh, from the beginning, even Rose in the diaries you see, there's a ticket. He has a ticket. He has a point of departure and he has a likely point of return, whether it's on a boat or however. Mm -hmm. uh, he's what Zimmel would call the wanderer. He comes today, he stays for two weeks, he does his work, he goes home. The interesting thing about the Soviets is not only what their approach to public health was, but these Soviet representatives were charged with, and it's a horrible word, you can't use it anymore, becoming embedded. The, the, the more embedded in the local situation they became, the better work. Whereas I don't, I mean, Greg was told to meet the right people, but he wasn't told to become embedded. In fact, it was really important that the Rockefeller uh, officers maintained a certain distance, intellectual distance. So I think, I mean, just let me throw that out because it hit me after. I think that's a fairly fundamental difference, in addition to the one that, of course, you rightfully signal as number one. To becoming a better is to, go, to, to going native. To going native, that's right. right. Like that's right. Yes. In China, or, 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 or everywhere. Yeah. To going native. To go native, yeah. And then I read the worst thing you could do. Right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Worst thing you could do. Um, on that note, so thank you very much. It was a very wonderful panel and discussion. And I think the one is ready, right? Yeah. I should do a great job. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have to close this down. Thank you.